0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Slaney. Hi, it's Joanna. And welcome back to Show Your Work, our podcast about work. We missed you. We did miss you, and you missed us because we got so many tweets about where's the podcast this week, but um, not to sound bitchy off the top of the podcast. Oh, here we go. But we did say last time that we were taking a one-week break, which means you guys didn't listen to the very end. So we're going to put our notice and our uh, alerts At the beginning of the podcast this time, this is our third to last episode of our first season, which means we have two more to go after this one. Two more episodes, that is. Correct. So, uh, our last podcast for season one will be posted on August 28th.
2: And then we will be taking a short break and be back with so much more for you soon, uh, including the… Continuing chronicles of where is Duanna sitting, not to make it all about me, uh, but when you said we had lots of texts and tweets and things, I was like, yeah, they were all about me lying on a yoga mat. Uh,
1: Thank you so much for your concern. I am fine. My back is fine. You're no longer lying on a yoga mat. You are now doing a Mariah Carey style podcast positioning. Well, I would have called it a Cleopatra. Yes. Um, In order to
2: capitalize on the really positive sort of vocal feedback (laughs) that we got, uh, I am now in a, yes, in a, in a lounge, yes, in a lounge position, uh, with a microphone suspended in front of me.
1: I think that we should actually take a picture of you this way, because it's so Mimi. It's so Mariah Carey. Like, you are… I'm pretty into it. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You are, um, as my one of my dogs yells from downstairs, uh, you also… Wait, wait, wait. Get the Prosecco, the rosé in the other hand. Um, while my dog... Uh, dogs had- <laughs> heard the word dogs and decided that was an invitation. They're playing chase with a stuffed toy right now. Um, anyway, yes, with, with the, this is totally Mariah Carey.
2: It's not bad, actually.
1: Yeah. And also, uh, we're letting you know because please do continue sending us your emails about work. We've gotten so many of them that we actually want to dedicate part of one of our final episodes of the season to your emails and your work dilemmas. We've got a few of them. They're really good, you
2: guys. Like, keep them coming and keep us posted on what's going on.
1: So we're coming up to, like, back-to-school season, which is, you know, kind of why we're taking hiatus. Um, Towards the end of August, people are usually going away. We're busy too, and then, of course, everybody is taking that time, that mental space, to get ready for the beginning of September, after Labor Day, people go back to school. That is my segue to my bag change. For, <laughs> e- <laughs> for years, I have carried around a tote bag, and in this tote bag, as you know, Duanna, because you do the same thing, I've got a laptop, a charger – no, several chargers. I have chargers for the phone, chargers for the laptop, chargers for my e Uh, A notebook. But look, I carry a
2: tote, too. You carry, like, (laughs) this is a parachute. that I have picked it up when we have been sort of in places and like, oh, I'll grab that while you're doing the thing. That thing is shocking in how heavy it is. And I have to say, without, you know, uh, advertising for anybody, uh, uh, it has held up very well. Like, I always expected that thing to rip with how heavy it was. Oh, uh,
1: no doubt. It was a Herschel, the tote. And… Uh, This episode is not sponsored by Herschel, but it should be. I love Herschel. It was not an expensive bag. I think it was like $69. It lasted me four years. At least. I've seen that thing for a long… And like (laughs) it's gone places with us. It has traveled. So it's starting to pill um, and it has stains on it. But really it's the heaviness because as you just said, I carry so many things around with me on a daily basis that I have switched back to a backpack. I am now… That person who walks around with backpack. I love. I, I forgot how much I love backpacking. Not actually hiking. I was going to say, <laughs> but I forgot how much I like putting. I like putting my work shit in a backpack. Not only because of the. I don't know. I, I think it's just. It makes me feel like I'm. I'm working. I'm industrious. I'm okay, marching so I have a along. Question. So we don't
2: usually talk about the, you know, relatively small distance between us age-wise, but sometimes it comes up. Like this week when I wanted to discuss the DuckTales theme uh, as part of Show Your Work and you had no interest. Uh, So, you know, that's a generational thing. We'll include the article anyway. Similarly, were you allowed – when I say allowed, I mean style-wise – Uh, Were you allowed to wear your backpack on both shoulders uh, in high school, or was it a one shoulder only kind of situation?
1: Who's doing the allowing? Well, I just mean
2: styles are styles. Things happen. Things come and go. When I was uh, a teenager, you wouldn't be caught dead with your backpack on two shoulders. And I feel like that relatively small moment in time has kind of dissuaded me from going back to the backpack as soon as I should.
1: Okay, so for my generation, being that I am a little bit older than you, at first it was one shoulder. Mm. And then suddenly we just all decided, I can't remember how and why, we all decided to rock the two-shoulder and we did the two-shoulder proudly. Right. Um, Which is right and which is what you should do. Look, I'm a holdout.
2: I just got a new bucket bag that I love. Uh, My bucket bags have to be big enough to hold a laptop. It's the same deal, chargers, whatever. But TV writers in general are devoted, devoted backpack people, devoted Herschel people for the most part, sometimes a fall raven, you know. Uh, I would like to be wooed back to a backpack and, you know, in, in TV and media and so forth, we start our new seasons in September. We start the new year. It's everybody I know who is a grown adult will still be found skulking around to Staples buying new school supplies.
1: It's, it's actually amazing how that doesn't leave you because although no one wanted to go back to school, everybody was kind of excited about back to school shopping and new… Okay, fine, nerd. Maybe you wanted to go back to school, but like nobody no, I, I, wanted to go back to school.
2: No, I wanted to like line up my school supplies yes. on my bed while listening to SWV's week. And the smell,
1: week. the smell of new paper and the smell of a new binder. So when I got my backpack, I… Like, I, I know it's only August, but I have to say I'm excited every day to put my backpack on my shoulders and go to work. Even though it's like 6.30 in the morning and no one should be excited to go to work at 6.30 in the morning, I'm like, I'm really excited to put this backpack on. Just in case you
2: thought this was idle discussion, you guys, the backpack is sitting at the table with us uh, like it's a favored child. Like it is actually has a seat at the table.
1: But, and… The thing is, I got the backpack in Vancouver where I was last weekend. I went shopping with my best friend, Fiona. We both decided we wanted backpacks, so we actually got twinsy backpacks. She and I got the same one, and we will be twinsy backpacking together. Anyway, I'm obsessed with my backpack. I have now gone back to backpacks. Uh, For those of you listening, let us know if you're a backpacker (laughs) (laughs) or if you're still a toter. Uh, You know, and I I get that it's… Or a bucket bagger.
2: Or whatever. Yes, except… But it's… I like a portable laptop. It's a thing. So, I mean, you know, that's a pretty light-hearted opener because when it comes to our first story, we talked about this and uh, we couldn't do anything else. The story packs a punch, uh, but there was nothing else we could kind of do. And it does have a lot to do with getting back to the grindstone and back to what matters and getting to work.
1: I didn't think that we would be featuring this person as the lead story on Show Your Work until at least a few months when she had new material, as in a new album. Um, I, you know, and listen, when we do this show, we kind of, we go by week by week, we line up the show, and then we also project because typically we, not to give you too much, not to give too much away, but we generally like to lead with a big story and a big name. And typically that happens when somebody has a new movie coming out or a new TV show coming out or a new book coming out or a new album coming out. This person doesn't have any of those things coming out, but she right now is the person that uh, we have to talk about. I don't think we can get around it. Well, what she has is a new facet coming out, right? Or a
2: facet coming around again. A new era yeah like if you think of sort of a uh I don't know a rotating jewel like in a heist movie, uh there's a new facet coming around to be to be featured again.
1: okay, so of course, this is Taylor Swift. so Taylor Swift, um we are recording this on Friday, but uh I don't think the verdict is gonna be read uh you know um before this podcast is posted, but Taylor Swift uh was in Denver. And has been in Denver for her civil trial against… I don't know. What is the language? Against? Because he sued her first and then she countersued him. She is in a
2: countersuit. Okay. So,
1: yeah. It's a a civil trial, as you say. It's a civil trial with, against… Like, uh, what is the uh, preposition? She is… Countersuing in response to the lawsuit that was filed against her by a former DJ. She is testifying
2: in a trial, uh, in a sexual assault trial. Let's just say that.
1: Yeah. Civil. A civil Civil, sexual… Yeah.
2: And just in case, uh, because I know that there were still some people confused about how this came about, uh, obviously we'll talk about the minutiae, but basically the story is that when the alleged event happened, I'm putting quotes around alleged, Taylor Swift only mentioned to people where this guy worked that this had happened. He lost his job as a result. Then he sued her. He made the first lawsuit. I believe he's suing for $3 million dollars. Uh, For lost wages and opportunities. And
1: reputation.
2: And basically saying that she slandered him and otherwise maligned his reputation. That's right. Taylor Swift, when slapped with this lawsuit, countersued for $1 and legal fees. Uh, And I think that's a really interesting place to begin. So that's how we came to this place where she is testifying in court. She countersued. Uh, rather than, I, I don't know, if you're sued, can you settle out of court? I mean, settling out of court would imply that you had some responsibility.
1: 100%. And a lot of celebrities, you, when you talk to celebrity managers and reps, they will say, even though my client was innocent, we countersued sued because… Uh, or no, sorry, we settled because we just didn't want to go through the long drawn out privacy invading situation where we would have to present in court and it just for this, that, and the other reason was much more expeditious and much less, dr- like it would be have been much less dramatic for us to just settle, write a check, see you later, move on. She decided not to go that route, route, um, and she countersued.
2: Yeah. And I think you and I are talking about this from Canada where processes can be kind of different. But in a civil suit, uh, that's not that much hyperbole. Uh, Obviously, sometimes people say that just to wiggle out of the situation, but uh, there are depositions. They take a really long time. There's flying to the place where the trial is taking place. There's testimony and opening yourself up to whatever somebody wants to ask on the stand, knowing, as we know, that uh, somebody's entire life can be called up if it is relevant. Uh, And here sits Taylor Swift.
1: That's right. And let's, let's be clear here. She's countersuing, as you said, for $1 and legal expenses, which she's pledged if she wins that she will donate to various sexual assault organizations. But she's also incurring major expenses in addition to legal fees. Like the report right now is that she's booked out I don't know, the top floor or several floors of the Ritz or the nicest hotel in Denver right now, because obviously she has to stay somewhere and she comes with people. You know, when Taylor Swift travels somewhere and her mother is involved in the suit as well, she and her mother go with bodyguards, assistants, publicists, this and that. So they've got the whole floor. Plus, I think… they're making sure that she's driven underground directly at the hotel and then underground directly at the courthouse. So those are personal expenses that I don't think that she's claiming in the lawsuit. Not that for her it's a big deal, like traveling and hotel fees, but it's still something. Well, you know what? I really like that you brought that up because if we were
2: talking about this in another context, if this was… Uh, uh, remember when Oprah was involved in a trial, so she moved the show, her entire Oprah show uh, to… It was the beef
1: trial. The, the right? beef trial. Yeah. That's right. To when Texas. she said she
2: would never eat beef again. So she moved the whole show to Texas so that she wouldn't have to shut down the show. And if we added up all those costs for Oprah to move her show, we would say, well, it's the cost of doing business. And for Taylor Swift, moving all those people down and having the hotel floors and everything like that and her mom and her security is the cost of doing business. And the reason I love that is because we are being really clear that this is business for Taylor Swift. This is part of a day's work. She could have settled out of court. She could have, you know, come to an agreement. She could have done a million things. She could have not subjected herself to some lawyer being like, well, mm, weren't you mistaken, little girl? but this is part of her work. And I think we all have felt at times about somebody who is as popular and as like pop culture saturated as Taylor Swift. There are moments where you're in love and moments where you're not and moments where you're like, oh, I'm into that and not. But this move to make this part of her work, to do it publicly, to not testify on tape, but to be part of the thing and incur the… what do her fans call themselves? Swifties, maybe? Like, they're putting signs in buildings across the street and whatnot. Some of the
1: signs are hilarious. Like, Uh, I knew you were trouble. Like,
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. But she's doing this all, not just… well, I guess this is the conversation. You know, there are people… I suppose you could be cynical and say oh, it's all publicity stunt, it's good for her, it's helpful, I keep coming down on the side of it is part of her business and maybe even part of her brand to show this guy that you cannot grope a teenager or early 20-something or whatever she was at
1: the time and get away with it. I agree. And, you know, you mentioned the word cynical, so I kind of just want to get that out of the way. Yeah, let's go. Right. 100% Taylor Swift has the resources to do something like this. Yeah, of course. Um, And does a legal system favor the wealthy? Yes. Sure. Definitely. That said, again, we've just talked about there are many examples of situations involving celebrities where because of their high-profile status and because of… In a courtroom, the risk of exposing yourself to a line of questioning that you may not be comfortable with, many of them choose to settle even though they've done nothing wrong.
2: Or that's a real convenient thing to say
1: when you
2: have done something wrong, but you can, you know, get out of it that way.
1: So what we're saying here, like, nobody's doubting that she's privileged. She is white. She is wealthy. She is famous. So 100%, she has many, many things going for her, but that also doesn't mean that she wasn't disrespected, that a wrong wasn't done to her. Or let me put it this way, she can afford to do what she's doing, right? She
2: can afford to take this guy to task for saying that she was lying. And she's choosing to afford to. And she's choosing to afford to. Again, I'm reminded… God help me, but I'm about to compare Taylor Swift to Roxane Gay.
1: <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. I know where you're going, You I know, think.
2: close to a year ago now, uh, when Milo Yiannopoulos was given a book deal by Simon and Schuster, Roxane Gay backed out of her book deal with the same publisher. And she said, and was very clear, I don't expect everybody to do this. I am doing this because I can afford to. Because I can afford to make this kind of statement… I am doing it. And to me, Taylor Swift is doing the same thing. She can afford to make this statement for $1, which of course is not going to be $1. She can afford uh, in all the ways, not just in wealth, as you pointed out, but in capital, in being a favored, wealthy, white woman uh, who is, you know, privileged. She can afford to do this. But she still is doing this. And the this is saying, once again, you cannot get away with this. You cannot grope a young woman. Any woman. Yes. And you cannot grope any woman, lie about it, grin like a fucking cat that got the canary in a picture, and then try to claim damages and get away with it. She is taking him to task because she can afford to. She
1: can afford to. And as I wrote, she can afford to be defiant. She can afford to have the tone. Yeah, sure. And and 100%, as I wrote, there are certain women, even famous uh, women who are women of color, who may not be able to take that tone, who have to worry about being perceived as especially in the case of black women being the angry black woman. When I wrote to this when I wrote this to you via text that day when the transcript of Taylor mm-hmm. Swift's testimony came out, you actually um you actually appreciated the point but offered um offered to me um like a bit of research about Beyonce.
2: Yeah, there was a civil suit uh where you know involving Kelly Rowland and Beyonce and Tina Knowles and Matthew Knowles uh, by uh, Latoya and Latavia for Destiny's Child's earnings or not and things that they were or were not entitled to and so forth. And, you know, there are pages and pages devoted to uh, the ways in which Beyonce and her mother and Kelly, to a lesser extent, tried to stay calm were making it a priority not to get angry at the lawyers who were trying to make them get angry, uh, were presenting a polite and graceful front at all times. So, yeah, of course that is a factor. And that's one of those situations that, in fact, did settle out of court. That was a settlement. But the depositions are still long. They're still legal proceedings. I hear you on all of these fronts and that Taylor Swift has the privilege that many don't, but I keep coming back to because she has all this privilege, she's doing what you should do if you have all that privilege. Yes,
1: I agree. I mean, for me, bringing up those points was just because we have gotten emails from people who are like, but, 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 and I get it. Like, it's important to list those but, but, but. Yeah, up front
2: to list all those but,
1: but 100%. And yet, as you're saying, Duanna, what is has… What is she supposed to do when you build all that capital not to use it? Well, we know
2: lots of people who wouldn't use it. You know, I... We know lots of people who wouldn't. We know lots of people who would shy away from this kind of thing, who, when confronted by the paparazzi, would be like, oh, that's all a private matter, or I can't talk about it, or whatever. Not that I'm suggesting you discuss your legal issues, like, on the front step of LAX, but uh, she... Is kind of facing up to it. And this is where I can't not love Taylor Swift. She is as problematic as anybody else from time to time. She is still only a child. She's still only, I I should stop saying that. She's a grown woman, but she seems uh, as ignorant as her 20 some odd years would indicate sometimes. Uh, She's all these things, but she has guts. And I am always impressed by somebody with guts who is willing to do things like this, who is willing to be wrong, who is willing to make mistakes, uh, even if she doesn't always admit the mistakes. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of guts to go and do what she's doing and to expose herself, no pun intended, uh, in a situation which is going to be skeptical of her because she's a celebrity.
1: I I agree with everything that you said and what you've listed in that Taylor Swift, uh, especially what, in the last 18 months to a year or so, has not been the most popular. Kim Kardashian exposed her. Mm -hmm. She was called out for whatever you want to think of her relationship with Tom Hiddleston. (laughs) I forgot. Um, And and all of that. I get it. Those of you out there who are sort of primed to be anti-Taylor Swift, we get it here. I mean, that's why we're listing this. That said… All those qualities that were… that were talked about with respect to Taylor Swift over the last year, being manipulative and controlling and strategic and,
0: Petty, let's go ahead and throw that in.
1: All of those things, actually, she has seized to her advantage in this particular case. I have always… and I have been writing about it for a long time now. I have always wanted to see openly that side of Taylor Swift, the one, the side of Taylor Swift who is prepared. The Taylor Swift who is so strategic, who's done her homework, who has clearly studied, who is actually not spontaneous, but is actually very, very pragmatically rehearsed. All those qualities that have been used to criticize her in gossipy ways over the last year. She is actually using them in a way in this trial to great advantage, being manipulative or some would say pragmatic, being 100% researched and prepared. You could tell that in the way that she delivered her statements when she said to the opposing attorney you can ask it to me a thousand ways and my answer is still always going to be the same, that speaks directly to me at least to research that she's clearly and her team have put into other sexual assault cases where the credibility of the victim has been called into question and a line of questioning that is, you know, designed to attack. Did you really remember it that way? Are you sure that happened? Uh, wasn't it, didn't it go down like this? It was a year ago. It was four years ago. She was very, very clear several times about the fact that they could not challenge her and her memory because it happened to me, she said. It happened to me. Now, let's be clear. It can have happened to
2: all kinds of women. And even when it happens to you, you can have problems in recollection, You can have problems in saying things the same way the same time. So I want to be clear that her being so staunch in what she says and, you know, uh, calculating in the words that she uses is, as you say, a result of preparation. And people who don't have the resources to prepare that way, it doesn't mean that they are any less sure of what happened to them.
1: No, but you can have resources and not prepare. Of course. You can have resources and not be ready. This is never a girl who's not ready. Here's my question to you. Uh, You know, at one point they said to her,
2: uh, and I thought it was kind of interesting because I wonder if they knew the answer they were going to get. They asked her if she had seen, like, legal programs on TV or was she uh, a legal buff or something.
1: Yeah, because it was something to do with, like, identifying people in a lineup. And she said… Uh, yeah, my cat
2: is named after a character from Law & Order.
1: Yeah, her two cat... cats. or uh, No, yeah, uh, one, Olivia Benson. Olivia Benson. She right. has a
2: cat with the foldy ears uh, named Olivia Benson. But here's my question. When you talk about her being prepared, do you think that some of those great lines that we talked about, uh, that I retweeted, do you think some of those lines were scripted?
1: I… You know, the line about um, I'm critical of your client uh, grabbing my ass, mm. I don't think that one was scripted simply because she used the word from the attorney that was cross-examining her because his question was, aren't you critical of your bodyguard in that he didn't do anything to stop this or that he… whatever. So she used the word, she flipped his word, and but no, I'm critical of your client for touching my ass. Right. And? So I don't think that was scripted because to me that's quick wit in the moment. Well, and the one that really gets me is when he asked,
2: why isn't your skirt lifted up in front? And she said, because my ass is located on the back of my body. <laughs>
1: that's right. Yeah. I don't think you can script that.
2: I. That's the thing that's really interesting here is that I don't think you can script it either. And I don't think if you were scripting it, if you were working with your legal team – there's something really authentic about the fact that she keeps saying "ass."
1: Yes. Let's I, talk about the language.
2: Yeah. I really, you know, I feel as though if you were, you know, if you've seen the picture, I referred to her as a young girl. And that's wrong, of course. I can Google, but I'm pretty sure Taylor Swift was in her early 20s at She's the time. She was 23. Yeah. She is a woman, uh, as any 23-year-old is a woman. Uh, and she, you know, the the outfit and whatnot is uh, is is girlish, and Taylor Swift has sort of a girlish affect at times that she cultivates or doesn't. But I found, yeah, uh, her use of my ass is located on the back of my body. She is being a smartass, and I kind of feel like you. Like it feels. I don't think you can script smartass. I think you can script the right answer in court, but I don't think you can script smartass. ass.
1: No, I think that certainly those answers where she was, um, you know, her emphasis on it happened to me, mm-hmm. you can ask me this a thousand times and my answer will always be the same. Certainly that was prepared. But the off-the-cuff remarks about, yeah, because my ass is located on the back of my body and no, I'm critical of your client not knowing how to take a photo. And another time she said, uh, he got a handful of my bare ass.
2: One of the things I love about that is that she's kind of a. It sounds really real. It's the way I would tell you that story if if something like that happened to me. And the other thing is that there's no apologies in my bare ass. I don't know if she was what she was wearing, uh, but I love that she's not couching it in. Uh, because I had to wear a thing for my performance or my whatever. Yeah. I'm a good girl and I wear underwear because bad girls don't wear underwear. Like nor that I- kind of thing. Yeah. No, nor is she saying uh, my left buttock. Uh, and it's it's the way she would talk. There's no shame no, in any of what she says. And I don't expect there to be shame. I don't think there should be shame. But, you know, we know the story. We know where this girl came from and sort of the… Uh, hints about being a good girl and who gave up everything they had and all that kind of shit. And so this feels, in terms of a grown woman talking about her body in the way that a grown woman is entitled to, it feels like a step ahead in that way.
1: I I definitely didn't think of it that way. Now that you mention it, I, like, again, 100% agree with you. I would add to that, though, that Andrea, her mother, Mm -hmm. who took the stand the day before, also used the word ass. Mm -hmm. Taylor repeatedly used the word ass. And even though I think, like you, that the -the off-the-cuff responses were, in fact, off-the-cuff and spontaneous, I do believe that the use of the word ass instead of butt or rear end or whatever, a more polite word, because ass in some circles is still considered… Uh, Maybe not between you and me and in our spaces, in our circles, but the word ass in some circles. Like, I can't say it at one o'clock on TV. No.
2: And, you know, I was thinking about my mom, uh, avid listener of the podcast. Hi, mom. Uh, Who
1: I think would say bum in that context. That's right. Or buttocks. 100%. So, I do believe that given that Andrea also used the word ass and Taylor repeatedly used the word ass, I think where if you want to look for calculation or strategy… I do think that that was a decision made with the legal team or a Taylor decision that she said, we're just going to do it this way, um, to use the word "ass" because it also reflects how crass the act was. Mm, interesting. Right? It does also get dirty in the sense of, this is what he did. It mm-hmm. was a dirty thing. I'm yes. not going to polite it up for him. I'm not going to, when I refer to what he did to me, say, he grazed my rear end. There's a difference between, and you and I are both language freaks, there's a difference between saying, he um, took a handful of my rear end and he grabbed my bare ass. Yeah, absolutely. And so what that does, it reflects back on the perpetrator saying, this is a low down dirty scumbag and I am not going to clean up his act for him with my words. So that to me, again, is a very smart decision. Because, of course, Taylor Swift, we've seen, I don't know if she's, I don't know if we've ever heard her swear. I think ass might be the closest that Taylor Swift has come to swearing in public, and she's doing it in a courtroom. That has to be some sort of premeditated decision.
2: Yeah, I love it. I love your, the way that you parse that, that it is about his crass act. And I think that saying anything other than what a you know image cannot not be part of this lawsuit right so saying anything other than what a millionaire new york dwelling single woman in her in her 20s would say might imply a bit of shame to me i think that part of saying ass is being unafraid to say uh to be honest about what happened uh that you don't have to couch it in polite language implying that there was some impropriety here, yes. implying that there was something done that was not, uh, that was, you know, a bit, a bit tittery or behind the hand. Or that she has to feel dirty That's what I mean. It. Yeah. That, 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 you know, she said, well, unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, my skirt levitated and I could feel a hand on my buttock. It implies like, that she's ashamed.
1: Buttock. Yeah, Exactly. I, 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 I raised this, though, I wanted to make a particular specific point about this, because we've gotten a couple of emails mm-hmm. from people, from women, who were slightly alarmed by this language. Oh, really? Who said, why is she speaking like this in a courtroom? You know, it's so… why is she saying the word ass over and over again? And the, the, the sort of overall idea that I was getting from these emails was that these women who were writing were uncomfortable with Taylor speaking that way so disrespectfully if mm. you if if you wish um in a courtroom in a place where decorum is typically observed is is paramount right like That's there's right. so many rituals in the courtroom about standing up and sitting down and That's all right. the responses it's like church yeah. almost and so i i 100% wanted to address this and and also put it out there that we all have things that we need to shake off or that we have conditioned and internalized specifically around how women should speak. And I will say in fairness to the people who are writing in and expressing these kinds of concerns, they also liken the word ass and butt to shit and defecate. You would never say shit in a courtroom and you would maybe replace it with the word defecate or I don't know, whatever, go poo or number two. And so I get it. I get, I get sometimes that we can be hung up on elegant language and colloquial language. Um, But I also, I also feel that we apply that hang up more, like more stringently to women and how women should speak and how women should carry themselves um, and how that classy protocol and you know, the importance of being elegant is much, it's weighted more heavily on a woman's side. And I feel like you and I right now are breaking that down or trying to. You
2: know, when you talk about Taylor Swift being uh, calculating and pragmatic and all those things, when she decided to take on this lawsuit, I think obviously, as I said, it's a, it's a posture. She's doing it to make a point, right? But you don't do something to make a point unless you can do it in a way that is, I don't want to say perfect. It kind of mal- it disagrees with what we're doing here. But you don't want to do something like that and make a point unless you can leave it all on the floor and feel fine about it. And so I think Taylor Swift, as you say, thought about every aspect of how this would be. And didn't want to look back and say, I didn't make a point as clearly or strongly as I could have because I was watching my language. I didn't make as clear a point about how angry I was, how violated I felt. That's my word. She has not used that Mm -hmm. word to my knowledge. Because I was being decorous. And I really think that that speaks to uh, all those words we keep using, a pragmatism, a business sense… Uh, a calculatedness, it also just speaks to an intelligent woman. She's smart. No one ever called her stupid. Nobody ever called her stupid. But in using, in choosing the words that she's going to use and the ways that she comes at it, she has absolutely no apologies and no regrets. And I don't think, she's not stupid in the sense that she knows we're going to sit here and talk about this. Uh, And I don't think that you undertake something like that unless you can say, I'm going to leave everything on the table and have absolutely no regrets about why or how.
1: This is the side of Taylor Swift that I have always enjoyed and have got, like, I get turned on by. When she talks about her work, like, there are times when she's releasing an album and sometimes she goes into the work that's involved, how much she thinks about it, um, how she breaks it down. I've always enjoy that part of Taylor Swift. I I very much enjoy the fact that a Taylor Swift that is calculating and pragmatic exists. I want to see more of that. Um, we are seeing that in this trial. I would like to see how that looks more and more in when she puts this away and when she can Redirect back to what made her famous in the first place, which is songwriting. I would want to know if this is a demarcation, if this trial becomes a line where in 20 years we look at the trajectory of Taylor Swift's career, if we can look at this trial and say, you know what, prior to this trial, she was on the down. She was embarrassed by Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, then this trial happened, and she was so assertive, and she really showed us that… those balls, guts. You said… you used the word guts, gutsy, Um, and after that, X, Y, Z. I'm very curious to see how this translates onward. You know, you said you and I are language
2: freaks, uh, uh, which is not to say that, you know, we both love some profanity of our own, right? And as you were talking about that, will this be the demarcation line, I thought of that delicious phrase. Uh, You know, this is the point where Taylor Swift has no more fucks left to give, right? This is the point where she really truly is like, I am going to be who I am and do what it is I do, whether or not you like it, I could care the fuck less. Uh, which is a really exciting place to be. So,
1: yeah. It is. It is an exciting place to be, particularly now because, you know, in preparation for this trial and in the aftermath of what happened last year, as we all know, she's gone underground. Mm-hmm. Right? She has started cultivating mystery. Well, and look, that's exactly right. You cannot
2: be on trial anywhere if you have been out the night before at a, a club. That is as popular as Bungalow 8 once okay, was. Okay, but
1: let me just pound the table and hopefully Yasik will not edit this out. Yes, because how many of them do go to the club right. before they have to present themselves? And not only did she not go to the club the day before or the week before, she decided not to go anywhere eight months before this trial. That requires a discipline and a commitment that I, I want to credit her for. Well, yeah, and not just a
2: discipline and a commitment, because yes, it does, but also a conviction. She believes in herself. She believes in this trial. She is doing this because she thinks it's right. And I think when you do that, it's pretty easy to give up some nights out here and there when you really believe in what you're doing. I'm sure it's difficult at times. And again, insert the same macro about Taylor Swift has the money to throw private parties in the million loft she owns and blah, blah, blah. She's not suffering. But when you believe in the conviction of what you're doing, you can justify just about anything. I'm into it.
1: I'm quite excited, and it sounds like you are too, both by the way she handled this trial but in the lead up. That mystery that she has been working on, the the going quiet and this trial, it is a perfect way to reset. My God.
2: I actually wonder,
1: not to put a hat
2: on a hat and a postscript on a postscript. But I wonder as we look, uh, at show your work and as we look forward to, uh, our next season, whether we can start to pinpoint, uh, that moment where you stop caring about what anybody else thinks as the moment where a lot of careers really take a turn. Let's, let's see if that comes up again.
1: So, we were just talking about Taylor Swift and um, what tipping points in careers, right? Yeah. And right now, I want to know if you think John Cho has reached uh, one of those tipping points in his career. John Cho is currently starring in a film called Columbus. Uh, he is the lead, he is not typically the lead. Um, he's a lead. He's the lead in this film. Um, the, the shitty thing about this film is that it's being released in stages, so uh, depending on where you are, you probably can't see this film. I know, for example, Sarah, who lives in Chicago, still won't be able to see this film for a couple of weeks. That said, uh, the publicity, there have been s- some great articles and there's been some great press uh, about this film. It, uh, it screened at Sundance, I believe… People are really high on this film. It, it has received a lot of acclaim, and much of that is due to the director Kokonaga. Naga, um, and uh, he. This is his first full-length feature film, right? So, um Naga and John Cho have really, you know, during this press tour, have talked about the synergy they were able to develop in making this film. Um, but again. Our topic right now is John Cho and tipping points in careers and working for so long. John Cho, by Hollywood standards, is not young. No, he's not young. And in fact, uh, I've been working on
2: a different project recently where I've been marveling at how young some of Hollywood's young mothers are. Uh, I thought they were much older, and in fact, some of them are still in their 20s and so forth. By contrast, John Cho… If you had put me on the spot, I might have said John Cho was 31, maybe 33. Uh, John Cho was born, according to IMDb, in 1972. He's older than me.
1: Uh, I mean, you say that like that's so impossible. There are people older than you. Um, but yeah, 1972, which would put him at 45 this year. That makes John Cho
2: 45 uh, in June, actually. And he's been working for a really Really long time. I mean, if I had to put a finger on when I thought John Cho became a household name, that phrase we always use, I would put it, of course, at Harold and Kumar Good White Castle.
1: Yes. So,
2: you know, according to his IMDb, he was working for almost, uh, like, almost a good 10 years before that. He has been working for a really long time. But 2004, Harold and Kumar, John Cho becomes… John Cho, in a way. he becomes that guy. Oh, that was that guy from Harold and Kumar. And then for many years, he became, why isn't it happening for John Cho,
1: right? To some people, but to other people, and let's 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 call it what it is. I don't think a lot of people were sitting around wondering what was happening to John Cho because this is Hollywood and uh, people who look like John Cho with John Cho's name, Uh, They're not going to be at the top of the list for a lot of things.
2: No, I'm not implying that John Cho was up for the roles that ultimately went to Channing Tatum. (laughs) Right. But there started to be uh, a rumbling. There started to be this conversation, right? Because he turned up in more and more places. He appeared on more and more of your favorite things. He was on Grey's Anatomy. He was on How I Met Your Mother. He was on Ugly Betty. He was on Up All Night. He did the Harold and Kumar sequels. He was in Nick and Nora. I'm just barreling through 2007 right now. Yeah. Uh, he was around. He was in Star Trek. He was in Flash Forward. I mean, I can go on. John Cho has been working for a long time. And so before we go to, oh, is this a turning point in John Cho's career… I wanted to point out that for a lot of people, this career is all actors ever long for. Working constantly, making money, appearing in things that people like, uh, probably still able to get your groceries at Whole Foods without being, like, harassed. Uh, I'm sure John Cho has bought condoms at some point in the last 10 years without somebody, like, zooming in on his shopping bag, you know. It's kind of a sweet spot. It is. But… But now with this movie, I guess the question becomes why this movie would be the turning point for John Cho, what it is about this movie that would make him uh, from the household name that I've joked about to a legitimate movie star. Yes?
1: Yes. And I think that, you know, in order for us to tackle that question, um, and because I'm way more shallow than you are… I feel the need to bring this up. It's not just that John Cho has been around for forever and people were like, why hasn't it happened for John Cho? And, you know, you listed off all those things on his IMDb. But the other part that I don't think we can ignore here is that John Cho is beautiful. He's actually so
2: good looking. I'm so glad that you said that because I was worried that you were going to say the opposite. I was worried you were going to say something to the effect of like, Oh, but you know, but he's like, you know, he's a leading man, but he's not that tall or he's not that, th- yeah, of course he's beautiful.
1: He's beautiful. And so I think that under the subtext of people uh, like last year's meme and hashtag starring John Cho, it became a thing is because if John Cho were white with the beauty that John Cho has. Wouldn't John Cho have already starred in several films where he was the lead?
2: You know, it's so funny. As you're talking, I'm scrolling through some set photos uh, of John Cho, uh, and he is a very good-looking man. Uh, He's not super tall, which I don't think is a super surprise to anyone. But here is what may be a super surprise to you. Nobody in Hollywood is tall. All those actresses are tiny because… They're not tiny because you can only be an actress if you're tiny. They are tiny because they have to star opposite the dudes. And the dudes are tiny. And the dudes are tiny because when you're in high school, they go up to the six foot two guy and they're like, hey, come be on the football team. And the five foot seven guy is the one who winds up doing the drama class.
1: <laughs> right. And the five foot seven guy is Johnny Depp. Is Johnny Depp. Yeah. Is Mark Ruffalo. Is, uh, gosh, you name it. Um, Paul Rudd. Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, uh, Andy Samberg, like all those guys are short. Let's talk
1: about the biggest matinee idol, uh, James Dean, tiny. Sure. Tom
2: Cruise is tiny, famously tiny. So
1: yeah, I mean, his height is not, should not be a barrier. No, but I bring it
2: up because John Cho, unlike many of his, uh, would be contemporaries, uh, if we're, if we're going there, I felt the need to say silver screen there, uh, he's appearing with a lot of leading women who look to be taller than him or as tall, which is really interesting. I don't know if that's a lack of ego thing. I don't know if that's a he doesn't get to choose. But it's an interesting thing that uh, that you can see when you look at some of these pictures.
1: So, I mean, to go back to, to, to recap all these points, you know, you've been listing how long his career has been, how many things he's been in. We're talking about Columbus. I brought up the fact that knock, knock, hello, duh, he's beautiful. And yet Columbus really is, I can't name off the top of my head another film where John Cho is the lead and the romantic lead. Columbus is not really a true, if you want to just put things in boxes and categorize them, a rom-com. It's definitely not, but there is a romantic thread. And he is the only romantic male or the, the only male in the film considered to be the romantic option. So, um, and again, this film is getting a lot of acclaim and I love it. Obviously I'm here for it. I'm a little bitter that it took this long. Well, I have a question
2: for you about that. Uh, you know, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it too. Like this is not a, a known director, This is not uh, being plucked by uh, Terrence Malick or Steven Soderbergh to be the lead in your film. So, on the one hand, I kind of go, well, is this big enough to make John Cho? On the other hand, you know, we also have talked about uh, the, the... I feel like we can't have this conversation about John Cho being... Call it the first... Are we calling him the first Asian actor to... Breakthrough as a romantic lead?
1: Uh, uh, The fact that I can't counter you with another name, I think, is the point. So, sure, let's let that. I should say that,
2: uh, you know, I've been in a lot of conversations recently uh, in terms of casting about what constitutes Asian. Uh, versus South Asian versus uh, whatever. Uh, you can't have this conversation without talking first of all about uh, Kumail Nanjiani and The Big Sick. Uh, he is, of course, playing a romantic lead in a rom com that is doing incredibly well. It is about his own life. He's but he playing wrote himself. It. He wrote it. Yeah. But it's but if we're saying you know it's a rom com, that's what it is. Then there you go. Uh, then there's John Cho starring in Columbus, which is you see, have you seen it?
1: I can't see it. I, there's, you know, I want to see it. I want to see it so much, but it's one of those, like, slow rollouts, the limited release rollouts.
2: And then, of course, uh, you know, one of the biggest parts of… And then, of course, one of the biggest parts of this discussion has been uh, the casting for Crazy Rich Asians, uh, which you have been following so closely for so long. Crazy Rich Asians… Was pointed about doing a deep dive for a deep search for Asian actors, not accepting, no, there aren't good looking enough or young enough or famous enough or whatever. Uh, so, I guess my question to you is when you say you're a little bitter about that it took this long for John Cho, I also wonder will he be usurped by younger, newer, hotter actors who are and this is scandalous, but now kind of allowed to be in leading roles?
1: Well, I don't know. I think that's a great question. And maybe, and if we're going to talk about John Cho that way, then I go to Lucy Liu, right? So, you know, (sighs) (laughs) exactly. Like, I think of Lucy Liu, and I think of Lucy Liu, which is, you know, she was one of the angels. Yeah. And… I think of Lucy, we've talked about Lucy Liu a little bit um, in this podcast about how she's directing now. And I think about the, these conversations that we've been having in, in a loud way over the last, what, three to five years about diversity and the need for representation. They certainly weren't happening, and I, I don't want to use this terminology, but I will just because we're talking about Hollywood and they speak this way. The conversation that we're having now wasn't happening in Lucy Liu's prime, now, yes, one hundred percent. Lucy Lou's prime can be now. She's in her forties. No, no, and no. I don't, but I don't think it serves us
2: to sugarcoat what we're talking about. Yes.
1: So in Hollywood, for women, they consider your prime what eighteen to twenty-eight. Sure. Let's be. Let's be. You know. Let's be generous and say like yeah, twenty-four to thirty-three. Three. Okay. So I feel like Lucy Lou has everything. Right? Talent looks, because this is what we are. Yep. We're Hollywood. Charm. Yep. And that conversation was not happening in her sweet spot. It's happening now.
2: Yeah. Look, I'm not a, I'm not going to pretend to be a huge Erica Badu fan, but I reference the phrase and the video, see you next lifetime, all the time. Uh, because it just, the timing did not match up for Lucy Liu. She, Missed the boat in that way. That's she, why you
1: breathe that way just a ago. That's why I had that big sigh. Yeah. That's
2: right. Because you're right. It was all there, but it was not… it did not add up for her. They will go to her. This is my prediction. Wherever we are uh, in, you know… I hope it's sooner than I think, but wherever we are when the first uh, Asian actress or Asian American actress wins the Best Actress Oscar… huh? they're going to call Lucy Lou wherever she is and get a quote from her, right? Like the Monday after those Oscars and she'll be like, "Oh, I'm so proud and it's so amazing that this happened in my lifetime and blah blah blah." But the point is, it didn't happen for her. And that's a hard thing to process, but it's also, I think I guess it's not something you can rush. You know, all those women who are not Viola Davis when she gave that incredible speech, or Lupita Nyong'o who won uh, her Oscar and sort of was a was a breakthrough in that way. Uh, there are many women before them who did not win, and you know I know we're talking about John Cho, but I feel like it's important to discuss that there are people who notice this is happening. Uh, I want to segue for a minute to uh, uh, an article that uh, you and I kind of batted around. Uh, where Nisi Nash and Chelsea Handler were in a discussion about diversity and what it means and uh, what it's for. And, you know, Nisi Nash was talking about how much pressure there is on people who are diverse to say, well, it's fine now. And how often people say to her, well, now there's Taraji P. Henson, now there's Viola Davis, and now there's Kerry Washington. It's fine now, isn't it? And Uh, She said, what about all those women who aren't being represented? To which Chelsea Handler said, like who? And Nisi Nash, who you, I don't think anybody is expecting to be the voice of uh, the unspoken.
1: It was actually on Chelsea's uh, uh, talk show. It was on Netflix. That's amazing. Even better. And Nisi Nash says to her, "Uh, how about
2: Asian women? How about Muslim women? How about Middle Eastern women? How about all these other people that we are not seeing as cultures, as people? Uh, You know, one person is not an exception and one sort of chink in the diversity armor is not a diverse and layered entertainment or any other industry.
1: Well, and so you know, to go back then to John Cho and whether or not he could be the male version of Lucy Liu, what is critical about this particular role in Columbus directed by Kokonaga, who is also Korean, is, as he told Vulture recently, in working with John and casting John specifically in this film where he is the male lead, the romantic lead, it, quote, represents... Asian American male sexuality. Mm. And here's where I would and listen, we're not playing like oppression Olympics here. so uh, you know I'm not here to to say one person has it worse off than the other. but I will say that there is there are there's like a mountain of research even on dating apps that will tell you that the two, most marginalized groups for romantic opportunity, mm. let's say, who gets swiped right or left, whatever. I, we don't use Tinder, like, so I don't know what means. I think it 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 means. swipe left is bad. Okay. So the 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 two most marginalized groups um, who don't get accepted and swiped positively are black women and Asian men. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a director and an actor who are working together on a project that uh, specifically is presenting an Asian male as the coveted, as the desired, it is a big deal. It is one thing, it's one film, but it's a beginning of something. And to go back to what we were saying before, John Cho is beautiful. You know, when is equality going to be like actual equality, it's when, and I'm sorry people out there, I know you're going to be mad at me, but like when the Asian equivalent of a Paul Rudd is going to be cast as a romantic lead, and I hear you, you think Paul Rudd is cute, I get it, but Paul Rudd is not Brad Pitt, okay? The end. Okay, but Brad Pitt is not, anyway, uh, whatever.
2: You know what I mean though. I know, no, 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 but I know what you mean, but I actually think it's worth making the point for that reason. Uh, I don't think Brad Pitt is that sexually attractive. I understand that he is empirically symmetrical and beautiful. Your point is well taken. There are 17 steps. Like if you think, here's a true thing about Hollywood that feels fake. There are lists and lists and lists. You know, people always say, oh, the C list or the D list or the F list or whatever. But there are tiers Mm -hmm. of things that people go out to. A movie gets sent to the super A list, and then the would be amazing to have, and then the would be great, and then the let's see how it goes, and then the… Well, to like take this if we have to. Exactly. Yeah. And even… and more and more and more strata. And your point, of course, which is, God, a meta statement about all diversity everywhere, is that… John Cho is beautiful and should be treated as being in the beautiful pile, but instead he's the Asian pile. He is himself representing the, oh, the Asian-American pile.
1: Yeah. And And so we have to get there first. We have, like, unfortunately, what we do, the work here that Coconut is doing and and John Cho is doing is, like, first we have to convince you that Asian men are sexy. Mm Mm-hmm. And here is the most undeniably sexy beautiful Asian man. So here's my question to you. You say first we have to get there. First
2: we have to get to see that Asian men are attractive, which by the way, I think let's just be clear, which we know. We all know this. We've seen it in our lives. Yes. But I guess what I'm asking is what if what is your hope for John Cho's career? First part of the question. And second part, if it turns out that he is a bit of a before his time, if he's a bit of a Lucy Lou, if ultimately the, the guy who breaks through as an Asian American sexual lead, for lack of a more genteel term... Is the kid who's currently been recast as Reggie on Riverdale? Yeah, uh, you know, or one of the actors from Crazy Rich Asians, or any of the other million actors that we don't know about. Is that okay? Is John Cho's career in vain, or is it in service, or what's your hope? I guess.
1: Well, I'll I'll, I'll take the first part of the question too. What's my hope for John Cho's career? What I I love about this. Um, about this project and everything. Like, because I can't see this film, all I can do is consume it and all the interviews, and we will link to them in the post for this podcast, is what I'm learning about John Cho and what we didn't get to know. John Cho went to film school. He went to acting school. And so Kokonaga, um, in directing him in this film, is saying, yes, not only am I giving you the opportunity to see John Cho as a sexual romantic lead, but I'm actually giving him a role where he can tap into his studies. Hmm. You know, so um, what we're seeing, and you listed Kumar, Harold, and Kumar, right? Mm-hmm. And the the Star Trek and the whatnot. We actually haven't seen very many opportunities for John Cho to say hello. I am John Cho, thespian, and. This is one of the few times when there's a director and an executive producing team who are like, this guy has skills, skills with a Z, you know? (laughs) Um, And, you know, before this, nobody ever really thought of him as a classically trained actor. He is classically trained. Yeah, no, I assume he's a comedian. So, exactly. So. And this is what my hope is for. Like, he does this film and suddenly people are like, oh, right. Like, when we talk about… The fucking Shakespearean actors, like the Tom Hiddlestons, uh, the, the Tom Hiddlestons and the fucking, I don't know, what the other… Tom Hiddleston it? is a Shakespearean actor? Yeah. Didn't or, he play Loki or some he shit? He did. You Yes, exactly. He's most famous for Loki, but like, you know, he can do the stage, They you know. Okay, what the… Okay. And the Benedict, whatever, Cumberbatches. You don't think of John Cho in that way, and this is the film where I hope that finally we can think of him as not just the Harold and Kumar comedic actor but a dramatic like a serious actor who can actually be versatile that's my hope for john cho and i actually feel given that everything that i've read about him i hope this film opens up those opportunities for him um the second part of your question will it all be in vain i don't think so because I don't- if he is able to go out there and be like, hey, I can I, I can do more than just Harold, I can actually be a classically trained actor, then I think that in the next 10 years we're going to see John Cho in a way that we didn't expect to see John Cho.
2: Yeah, and you know, I didn't think uh, that it was in vain, but as we talk… it's ironic because as we talk about the opportunities for… Various people, you know, it's this is intersectionalism, right? Uh, Lucy Liu is past her prime. Uh, John Cho probably has twenty years still to being a leading man. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I don't think it's in vain. But I guess my question was whether if it's in service of a larger coterie of Asian actors, whether that's sort of a uh, a movement unto itself. And I think I'm. I hope it's both.
1: So um, are you watching Insecure?
2: So I was saving Insecure as rewards for having completed bits of work. Right. And I had a whole sequence set up uh, this week to get some stuff done, and I found out I had one less Insecure than I thought I did. Uh, So I was devastated. But yes, I am therefore caught up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I… I have been writing about the show. I love it so much. I love her. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I wrote about the Insecure Glow Up and um, how it was Vulture that noted that, uh, you know, with a bigger budget and a second season, um, everybody can tell that there's like a little bit more shine to the show. And in particular, you wanted to talk about one aspect of the show's shine that speaks to you. Yeah, you know, uh, you're right.
2: It's it's kind of a rite of passage that if a show gets a second season, uh, they get a little more money. It starts to look a little better. Uh, there are countless high school shows, for example, that in the first season only had one hallway that they have to make look a million different ways. Even
1: show like Gossip Girl, which was supposed to be glamorous. Yeah. Like if you look back between season one and season two. Even that is like the lighting, the clothes, everything is better. And
2: in so many ways it's intangible because you can't quite know why you feel better, but you're like, oh, okay, you can. And in some cases there are shows where uh, the second season has a budget cut. Unreal is a is a version of this. Unreal had a real sense of place in the first season with the mansion and everybody running around and everything in the second season is shot really tight and claustrophobic And you kind of go, oh, they lost some budget. But I wanted to talk about this amazing article uh, from Vulture, as so many of our favorite articles are, uh, that was written on August 7th, uh, entitled Why Everybody on Insecure Looks Better This Season. And the reason that I liked it is because it's an article about the clothes and about what Issa and Molly and Lawrence uh, are wearing. But it's not just about, oh, we have more money now. It's about how wardrobe and costume designers really channel uh, the characters through what they do. And that's what I thought was really cool.
1: Oh, I, I fucking love this. You forwarded this article to me and uh, we will post it with the post that will go with this podcast um, and yeah, this article talks about how costume designers choose outfits for their characters, not just overall, but in specific scenes. So uh, Issa right now is going through this awkward phase where she's single again, and she actually doesn't know how to be single again.
2: And to be sexy, right? Like and to be sexy. She wants to be, or I should say, like, she knows how to be sexy for herself, in herself, but not… Uh, what's kind of current in the world and what's kind of the thing to communicate that to the people she's trying to hook up with, which I think is amazing.
1: That's right. So in particular, uh, you know, the costume designer talks about this one scene, and I think it's in episode two uh, or three, where Issa and Molly go to like a bar. Um, yeah, it's episode three and Issa's wearing this like stupid, ridiculous outfit. Which is then worn
2: in the same scene by somebody who makes it look amazing. That's right. And that's what's so skilled about this kind of art. This is where you... I'm sure we've all been in the room with people who say, costume design for a movie, like for a contemporary movie where they all wore t-shirts, why did they get an Oscar for that? What's the big deal? And it's because of thoughtful stuff like that. It's because costume designers can put... Molly and Issa, who know each other and love each other, in a scene together, uh, both kind of, you know, in the same place, and yet Molly looks comfortable and Issa looks uncomfortable. You put somebody else in something, in a scene to highlight how your character's relationship with their clothing is reflective of their relationship with themselves.
1: That's right. And a few weeks back or a few months back… And this is, you know, this is my fucking petty cunt coming out now. We talked about Blake Lively. Uh,
2: Often, ironically, (laughs) yeah.
1: And we talked about Blake Lively at the Variety Power of Women event and how she, quote, popped off when some reporter asked her about what she's wearing. And she was like, how dare you ask me what I'm wearing because I'm here to blah, 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 blah. And both of us were like, shut up. Like, it's a very… You know, I will say, as we both said, Sarah Jessica Parker would never have responded that way. Would never. Would never. Because, as we've just said, clothing can reflect a purpose. Um, In art, it can reflect your character in a specific scene. But in life, it can also give us or at least provide a tone for what message we're trying to convey. Yes? Oh, God, of course. So her stupid Mickey Mouse amateur hour answer of popping off like it's some sort of surface feminism and chicken soup empowerment positivity was, Blake Lively, full of shit because if she was really intelligent and if she could really drill down, this is actually a tool that all of us, not just men, but women in a more heightened sense have… To be able to give a sense of message and a sense of purpose. And it's, it can, it's reflected 100% in this article and in the way that this show is dealing with the tone. You know, I really like that you pointed that out
2: uh, because it's for men and women. You know, sometimes there's this idea that fashion is the province of women. But one of the things this show has done… A, they make Lawrence a real character, uh, but I'm like everybody else, I'm in love with Lawrence because how can you not be? But in the third episode, they put him in a shirt when he's kind of realizing that he has options, that he is desirable to everybody. Uh, he goes to the barbecue and then he goes to the work thing and he's just fucked Issa in the previous episode. And the shirt that he's wearing that kind of looks like a warm-up jacket or a 70s whatever… He's so hot. (laughs) Yeah, he's super hot. But the shirt that he's wearing looks all for the world like a Gordon Gartrell. If you don't know what I mean by a Gordon Gartrell, you need to study up. This is a Cosby Show reference, and Cosby Show references are… Obviously have a heavier weight these days, but… Theo Huxtable at age 16 trying to look attractive for the ladies in (laughs) a… How much was it supposed to cost? A hundred
1: dollars? Something like that. And he really wants a Gordon Gartrell. And then they… You say a hundred dollars back then, whatever. A lot of money for back then. And then what happens is he gets an imitation. Well, Denise makes it for him, right? (laughs) Like she says, I can make it for you for 50 or whatever. Um. And
2: God love him. Like, it's just such a… It's such a relatable piece of television 30 years later. And I look at Lawrence in this shirt and I'm like, oh, this is what the Gordon Gartrell was always supposed to be. Not a Denise
1: version. No. <laughs> it is
2: navy and gold. It is so hot. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um. And it just… What I like about it is it speaks to where he is. It's like, oh, I look super hot and oh… I can have anything I want right now. Uh, And sort of reinforcing that is really interesting. Uh, The Molly character, if you don't know the show, uh, really focuses on her work this year and she finds out there's a a wage disparity and she really wants to uh, get out in front of that. And so they talk about how clearly she shifts her business where, how much she focuses on showing her work. It is amazing, and uh, certainly this is not the only show where so much work is done through wardrobe, right? Most famously, you referenced Sarah Jessica Parker, Sex in the City did a lot of work through wardrobe, but unfortunately, Sex in the City has been kind of relegated to a punchline in the last handful of years. Uh, it is not uh, kind of held up the way it once was. Uh, But it is one of many. There are other shows that have used wardrobe to incredible effect.
1: Yes, but despite the fact that you're saying that, you know, Sex and the City has gone down in esteem or whatever over the last few years, what I really loved um, about this uh, piece in Vulture about the costume designer and the wardrobe for Insecure is that that's the comparison they've chosen to make. So Patricia Field comes up in this description of how they plan out the wardrobe for each character. And the reason Patricia Field comes up is because when Sex and the City was in its heyday, Patricia Field became a celebrity in her own right for the decisions she was making for the characters and theref- and thereby elevating certain designers and certain pieces. Yeah, Where- she was star making. Right. Right. So we would watch Sex in the City and we'd be like, what the fuck is Samantha wearing or what is Carrie wearing? I have to have that. And the costume designer, and, you know, we've been remiss. We have not named her. So let's name her right now. We're sorry. Ayanna James. Um, Ayanna James, what she's doing is she's saying, I want to do for Insecure what Sex in the City did for Fashion. I want to make Insecure a destination for where people go to figure out what they need to add to their wardrobes, and it's already happening. In uh, in what in episode one, Issa was wearing when she and Molly go for a walk or a hike. She was wearing a Days of the Week t shirt, mm-hmm. like Monday, Tuesday. And the Wednesday, Tuesday… Or sorry, the Wednesday… I don't know my days of the week. The Wednesday, Thursday, Friday WTF was highlighted. And I saw that shirt and I was like, fuck, I need that shirt. Right. Because it was really just the days of the week, but the WTF is the, you know, the remarkable thing about it. Um, Ayana is highlighting major brand designers and labels, but she's also using a lot of message tees. So Issa wears a lot of message tees… you know, there are certain message tees that are associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. There are certain message tees that are calling out police brutality. Um, Ayana is saying right now that 100% my goal is to make the fashion on this show as important as it was for Sex in the City. And there's an added layer of significance there because this is, for lack of a better word, black style. Well, yeah. And so… First of all, there's not
2: another show that is highlighting black style in that way. Uh, And secondly, the comparisons to Sex and the City keep multiplying because, of course, Sex and the City was overtly a New York show. And Insecure is overtly a Los Angeles show. Uh, Specifically, it's, uh, you know, an Inglewood, South LA kind of show. But when I watch this, I understand things about the lives of my friends who live in LA uh, in a way that is not the same as my life. The, The way that they use cars as a place that things happen and sort of the establishments of all the apartments in a way that you don't necessarily, uh, on the East coast. So this is LA style. This is black style. This is, uh, young millennial professional style, but not, not everybody looks the same. Uh, Issa's most dressed up never comes close to Molly's casual. Uh, it has layers upon layers and it's really exciting to watch.
1: You're right. It has layers upon layers. And one of those layers, I mean, we're talking about clothes, how clothes can do so much, is… And I, you know, I know that people eye roll when this person's name comes up with respect to fashion, and that is Kanye West. And Kanye West a few years ago… Do people eye roll? Oh, yeah. Like how dare he? And he's getting into fashion. And when he complained, you remember when he complained a few years ago that Paris wasn't taking him seriously? <laughs> and, exactly, right? I mean, sorry, that's a funny thing, but yes. So on. what, unfortunately, Kanye West always gets in the way of himself, but what a lot of people don't want to credit, and there was a great article in the New York Times about Rihanna's fashion and Rihanna's fashion capital, is that A lot of what Rihanna has become in terms of a fashion trendsetter and innovator was paved by Kanye West, who went to Paris, who Ah. wanted to be involved in fashion, who wanted to, you know, involve black style and merge it with Paris. And he was rejected and he complained about being rejected. But then what did we see on the runway in Paris two years later? A co-opting of hip hop fashion on those runways. What do we see really from the Kardashians and what the criticism level that the Kardashians is, is that they have co-opted as white women, they have co-opted and borrowed, stolen, appropriated black fashion and called it their own and made so much money from it. What Insecure is doing, what Ayanna James is doing is really localizing and taking back and centering these trends, this amazing looking show on so many levels, but one of those levels is style and taking ownership of it and saying, hey, when you copy the Days of the Week t-shirt and when you copy this hairstyle, remember who originated it. Remember where it came from. It came from this show, which is an unapologetically black show that is highlighting black style. That is one of the levels of work that this show is doing. And I love that you said that because
2: now I can go back and watch uh, not only the style, not only sort of what it's highlighting, and of course Insecure has already been greenlit for season three. Uh, So there's lots more for us to look forward to, but also to see how each of the black characters is uh, a style leader, especially when they are with non-black colleagues and peers, how much they get to stand out relative to, uh, relative to other people who on other shows get the, the more exciting, more intriguing looks. Uh, so there's, there's so much richness here, uh, and so much for us to, to dig into. Uh, You keep saying it, so I don't want to overstate it, but if you're not watching Insecure, I'm not sure why. I don't know what it is that you don't know about what you're missing, but just
1: suffice it to say you are missing. Missing. And finally, we come to the part of our podcast that we always call Do You Need to Care About? And this is an obvious, we definitely need to care about this person, but… Um there are so many different elements here at work that is Jessica Williams.
2: So this was your homework. We asked you to watch The Incredible Jessica James. What did you think when you watched it?
1: I I love that um you know we have been talking sort of uh, around the fact over the last few months of about rom-coms. Oh yeah. And The death of the rom com, and there's been so much. There's been so much. There have been so many think pieces written about the death of the rom com, or how the rom com has reinvented itself, um, and how the rom com has now taken different forms. And we had The Big Sick, right? With and that has become one of the most successful films of the year, yeah. And we also have uh, Master of None, yes, and Uh, that is on television, and that is actually. Uh, many people classify it as, uh, categorize it as a rom-com. And so what the rom-com is, is moving towards is an area where people of color can actually uh, uh, grow the art, grow or, or at least show a different side of the art form. Well, yeah, no shit.
2: Like Insecure is, is I don't know if Insecure is a rom-com, but they're certainly rom and com. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, it's there. But yeah, because God knows there haven't been rom-coms with people of color for uh, certainly our entire lifetimes.
1: So here we have in The Incredible Jessica James starring Jessica Williams, a kind of classic rom-com, at least with classic rom-com elements. She's broken up with her boyfriend. She's figuring out uh, what it is to be single. She is also… Um, hating on, like, the gross dudes out there who are supposedly the options for her. Then she meets an awkward guy, um, a guy she never expected to be an option for her. That Those are the classic formulaic rom-com elements, yes? Of course. Those are tropes. Absolutely. It, it goes by the
2: formula and it feels good because you know the formula.
1: But we don't know rom-coms to be… I mean, we only see them as starring Kate Hudson and Julia Roberts, or we knew them for tw- 30 years, right, as starring Kate Hudson and Julia Roberts.
2: Well, you know, uh, my first thought when we just started talking about this was that I'm not sure I'm, was, I wasn't sure I was ready to let go of Jessica Williams as Jessica Williams. Uh, she was such a, beloved part of The Daily Show for me. She was so funny. Uh, and it even when she came up in the press as herself, uh, she felt so relevant and exciting uh, that I sort of was a bit reluctant to lose her quotes fully in place to scripted material. I wasn't sure I wanted to let her go there as much as I wanted to see stand-up specials and Jessica Williams interviewing people and Jessica Williams writing a book, uh, all of which I think is speculation at this point, but please write a book. Uh, But I was really pleasantly surprised by how much she disappeared into this role and also was still that really entertaining, hilarious presence.
1: Well, I I love that you said that. It's so interesting because, of course… When she was on The Daily Show and Jon Stewart announced that he was leaving, there was a campaign or there are a lot of people who were like, Jessica Williams should be the replacement or Mm -hmm. she should finally take the seat. And she uh, said on Twitter, she was like, hey, do you remember? Like she made an announcement on Twitter saying, "I like, that's, no, I'm not going to do that. So thank you very much. I'm very flattered. But like, no, thank you. And she just did this interview with The New York Times where… She says herself, "quote I know what I'd be incredible at, and I know what I wouldn't be as great at. I didn't want to insert myself into that narrative to please everybody else. I was listening to my heart, making sure I honored what I was truly excellent at, and that was in direct response to probably a question about why didn't you take on the Daily Show
2: Mm -hmm. or something similar? I'm sure there were
1: talk shows being
2: proffered at." her, and similar.
1: That's right. And her answer was, well, I know what I'd be awesome at and what I would kill, and I didn't think I would kill at that, so I didn't do it. This is such a, like, one of the many sub-chapters
2: of Show Your Work is uh, this idea that you should do what you are ready to do when you know you can take it on. That just because it's in front of you doesn't mean you have to take it and do it. If it's not where you feel like you can excel. And that's a hard lesson
1: for all of us. And she made that decision at like, what, 25 years old? Yeah. That's really knowing yourself. But again, in
2: Hollywood, and especially if you are an underrepresented uh, faction in Hollywood, you have to know yourself because there aren't necessarily a lot of people who have tread a path for you.
1: And yet in knowing yourself, you know, if you're Jessica Williams, you have to go to Sundance and be talked down to by Salma Hayek. I remember. And that was something where I really felt,
2: you know, I felt two ways. Because on the one hand, she was talked down to and then she held her own. And that was such a riveting uh, discussion for us to read and process. And at the same time, there are a lot of other 25-year-old actresses who just get to be actresses you know, who don't have to bear that on their shoulders of being kind of young and woke and standing up to Salma Hayek, who is just like, could you look me in the eyes, please? Which is just still makes me so uncomfortable. So uh, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot on Jessica Williams' shoulders, and she seems to be shouldering it rather well.
1: To say nothing of the day-to-day practicalities of shouldering the reality of being a black actress in a traditionally white space, which is Hollywood. And so I moved from the New York Times interview that I read about her to her piece, her profile in Allure. Um, It was a while ago, it was mid-July or towards the end of July, you know, while she was promoting The Incredible Jessica James, and she talks about her style, her personal style. And she talks about how she's chosen to wear her hair in braids because it's, you know, more convenient for her. And that she says while she doesn't focus much on her hair, she just does her hair the same all the time, she really loves makeup. And she said that, um, you know, I'm a tomboy. I really love doing my makeup though. I find it relaxing and grounding. And then she said, in the beginning, I watched a lot of YouTube tutorials You find a beauty blogger who has your skin tone and pretty much everything they use will look good on you. Even now, I bring my own stuff to shoots because a lot of makeup artists don't know how to work with African-American skin. They'll make me all one color. You know, and I love, like, she's doing this in Allure, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a fashion and beauty magazine. So the conversation is germane, right? She's talking about her style and her beauty and she's saying… But listen, um, hello, Beauty Magazine, I bring a lot of my own makeup to shoots with people like you because you hire people who don't have experience doing makeup for people with my skin
2: color. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because when I read that, I did not think magazines at all. I, uh, I immediately thought television and film. Because in a photo shoot, in a fashion shoot, uh, you can check each image as it it, uh, comes up. You know, it's sort of flashing onto the expensive Mac in the corner. Uh, And that's not to say that there are makeup artists who aren't making the same mistakes. But often when you are... But, you know, there's a limited place that they are lighting. Uh, The lighting is sort of static in a fashion shoot. For television and film... Uh, The nature of the beast means that the performer is moving through space, Uh, and so lighting has to be lit in a particular way, uh, and makeup has to be done in a particular way so that it catches the light all the time as the person moves, and that, I think, is where the bigger challenge is because a lot of what is standard for lighting, for camera work, uh, has been based on Caucasian skin for a really long time. I remember when HD TV came out and HD cameras, there was a real overhaul in the makeup industry because they couldn't get away with some of the same tricks that they had been doing for a long time. And similarly, I think we're now finally in a place where, as there are more and more Black performers and performers of color and people who have myriad different skin tones, uh, there now has to be. Kind of a reimagining of the art of lighting, the art of uh, some camera work in some ways, in order to make sure that people of color are lit and seen in the same way as uh, Caucasian people always have been.
1: And it goes back to representation across the board, um, above the line and below the line. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you watch a show like Queen Sugar and Insecure or a film like Moonlight where Ava DuVernay and Issa Rae and Melina um, and, of course, Barry Jenkins are hiring people of color, experts in their field, but who also are experts in lighting people of color. And you can see the difference. Um, Moonlight is, uh, if, if you've all seen the film, and I hope you have, it won the Oscar, you know, just this year, Moonlight takes place in a lot of dark spaces. Yeah, It's a like, it's called Moonlight. (laughs) Well, in fact, the longer
2: title of the play on which Moonlight is based is In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. That's right. Right? Like, it is specifically about how black bodies are seen at night. That's right. And then it goes ahead and, you know,
1: sees those black bodies at night. It's very exciting. That's right. And the… You know, the beauty of that film and the key scenes in that film happen at nighttime. Uh And so Barry Jenkins was able to, you know, of course not able to, but obviously knew how to light his film or at least how to hire the right people to light his film. And I can say with authority and experience that that doesn't happen often I work in television, you work in television, I have colleagues in television who are black, and it is a preoccupation for them that, frankly, I, being someone who's not black and whose skin tone is perhaps closer to white than it is to black, have never had to worry about. Same thing goes for, you know, my white colleagues. So I have been on shoots, both still shoots, photo shoots for fashion magazines, and moving shoots for television where it was not adequate. Either the lighting was not adequate or the the artists that were hired to make up my colleagues and my peers who ha- happened to be black, their skill level was not, their experience was not um, adequate to be able to make up all kinds of people of from diverse backgrounds. I was on a fashion shoot once and… I was being shot with a person of color, a black woman, and the makeup artist was completely not skilled, did not have the skill or the actual product in the bag to be able to make up uh, my colleague. Right. And it's it's so frustrating because… I can't tell you how frustrating it is.
2: Well, nothing in that situation is a surprise, right? Nothing in the situation of who you're going to be making up. Or what the, what the scenario will be or what makeup you might need is going to be a surprise. So there's not really an excuse for being unprepared. Uh, and there's not really an excuse for hiring people who don't know. I'm reminded of a really great segment in uh, a podcast I'm really enjoying right now called Happier in Hollywood. Uh, is uh, a great podcast which is just about kind of Hollywood hacks and how to live Uh, But uh, the two hosts had a new assistant who had herself been working on Queen Sugar and was talking about how uh, all of the departments on that show had to run various parts of hiring past Ava DuVernay and how they would say to each other, let's look harder, let's push further to find people of color in our various departments Nobody wants to say to Ava DuVernay, oh, we couldn't find somebody. Oh, there wasn't anybody who was, you know, a person who knew enough about this or who could do this or who was able to work with people of color. It's just not acceptable. It would not be acceptable. Those people themselves would lose their positions. And it reminds you that, yeah, if you push far enough, if you work hard enough, that of course there are people in all aspects of this industry who
1: are able to do what's required. Well, it reminds me of a story that you sent to me a while ago, and that was Jennifer Hudson on Dreamgirls. And you tell the story.
2: Well, you know, uh, Jennifer Hudson talked about how… Uh, and Dreamgirls was shot in… Uh, was it 2010? Maybe a bit earlier. Uh, that Jennifer Hudson, uh, who… You know, and there's there's so many layers to this because of course she was playing kind of the villain, Effie, uh, that she ultimately got uh, injections in her lip because the shadows that her lips were causing on film uh, were causing problems. Uh, i'm I'm speaking a little bit in euphemisms because I don't have her quote right in front of me. But what's fascinating about
1: that is that she was made to feel it was her fault, that it was her problem. She had to get lip injections. This was, Gym um, Girls came out in 2007, so this is 10 years ago. So we're not talking about like 1925, is what you're saying. Um, she had to get lip injections to account and compensate for a lack of lighting skill. And again, fuck you.
2: Well, and again, I don't know who was doing the lighting on Dreamgirls, but what I do know is that we're also compensating for standard lighting, correct lighting that was based on Caucasians for, you know, decades in the television and film industry.
1: Can you imagine Ava DuVernay asking someone who she'd cast who was black to get lip injections because her lighting technician couldn't figure out how to light one of her actors. Well, unfortunately
2: I can't. You know, you and I went to see uh Hamilton in one of still my my greatest uh memories of the year to date. Uh and the Hamilton that we saw, uh Donald Weber, who was incredible, was not the he was not the main Hamilton. Uh Javier Munoz was still playing Hamilton at that time, I think is still playing Hamilton. Uh, And he's a Hamilton of color. And there were times when he would be in a particular position downstage. And I would think, oh, that's not, that's not his lighting. They have not, you know, this is a situation where he was going on twice a week for a performer who ordinarily goes on eight times a week. Uh, so the lighting is maybe set up for for somebody whose whose skin tone is lighter, is closer to Caucasian. Okay, but
1: Jennifer Hudson won the Oscar for Dreamgirls. Like she wasn't just like a two time a week performer on this film. She was like what number two on the call sheet. Is sure. All I'm saying, yes. And you know,
2: I, when we read this quote where she says, "When I did Dreamgirls, I actually had to get my dent right here injected." because it was affecting the lighting. And when I got it done, the doctor was like, I do not want to do this. Do you realize people come in here and pay to have the lips you have naturally? And I was like, I don't want to, but I have to for the movie. I read that quote because I'm (gasps) not sure whether somebody asked her to do that or whether it was internalized. Gosh, we're just not getting that, Jennifer. That dent in your lip is really tricky, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah. But I bring up the fact that, as you say, sure she was number two on the call sheet. Also, it was ten years ago. Ten years later, this is still something that comes up that we're still watching for. Uh, You know, one of the praises of everything, everything, uh, the another rom-com starring Amanda Stenberg, another young black woman in a romantic comedy, uh, was that Stella Maggie's lighting made her look so beautiful and so luminous in a way that young black women are not always historically seen on camera. So it's a it's a collection of steps. And Jessica Williams pointing out that her part in it is providing no excuses, making sure that there are the products so that nobody can say to her, gee, your skin is a bit dot, 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 as was sort of arguably done to just. Jess- as was arguably done to Jennifer Hudson, Circuit Dream Girls, uh, is one part of it, but it's an ongoing process. So we do need
1: to care about Jessica Williams, duh, obviously, obviously, uh, and uh, about uh, the incredible Jessica James, yes, and about the the improvements that still need to be made in order for more Jessica Williams and more Jennifer Hudsons and more Issa Rays to be able to actually thrive in a beauty business?
2: These are the things that are show your work also. If you see a fix that has to be made where you work but that seems obvious that isn't happening, point it out, tell us, tell people you work with. I've heard it called the squeaky stare the thing that everybody knows about but just kind of avoids and jumps over, tell us what it is. Tell us what you found and what you highlighted. I would love to know.
1: And please keep sending us your emails and your tweets. Um, As we mentioned, this is the third to last episode of our first season, so we have two more to go, and we would like to dedicate some time um, in the next two episodes to your work dilemmas, your work celebrations, so keep it up. We are saving them up. Um, and thank you so much for continuing to tune in. We love seeing you show your work. Thank you for watching us show ours. We'll see you next time. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. Leave reviews. Bye.
0: Bye.